Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Burundi urges foreign governments to arrest exile coup plotters. World leaders gather in London to raise money for Syrian crisis. And UN marks World Cancer Day with call for more physical activity. In economics, MTN hires former U.S. Attorney General to challenge Nigerian fine. And in sports news, a Democratic Republic of Congo beats Guinea to reach the Chan finals. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. An Egyptian appeals court has overturned death sentences issued against 149 people in connection with a deadly attack on a police station in 2013. The court also ordered a retrial for the defendants over the attack, which occurred following the army's removal of Mohamed Morsi as president. The initial court ruling was issued in February last year amid a series of death sentences in mass trials as the government cracked down on supporters of Morsi. UN brokered talks involving the warring parties in Syria have been temporarily suspended. The talks officially got underway on Monday. The UN Special Envoy for Syria, Stefan de Mistura, made the announcement in Geneva, saying they were not delivering any humanitarian benefits for the Syrian people. The United Nations estimates that more than 250,000 people have been killed in the Syrian crisis, which enters its sixth year next month. Matthew Wells reports. Mr. de Mistura told reporters that he'd made the decision to bring the talks to what he described as a temporary pause. Representatives from the Syrian government and various opposition groups have been in Geneva all week in order to hold so-called proximity talks, meeting separately with the UN envoy. Mr. de Mistura said that the suspension did not amount to a failure of the talks and added that they would resume on February the 25th. He indicated that with no ceasefire, no end to aerial bombardment or crippling sieges in sight, he would not continue with talks for the sake of talks. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has urged the international community to help end the turmoil in Libya, warning it was creating a strategic time bomb for Africa and Europe. In a speech to the European Parliament, Buhari says the situation in southern Libya is particularly alarming as it is creating a flow of arms affecting Nigeria and other countries. Buhari is fighting to end a six-year insurgency in Nigeria by Islamic militant group Boko Haram. 
About one-third of cancer cases can be prevented by limiting tobacco use, lowering alcohol consumption and doing more exercise. This is according to the World Health Organization as the world marks World Cancer Day. WHO, which predicts global cancer cases, will rise to more than 20 million annually. Over the next two decades, is calling for improved health coverage for cancer and non-communicable diseases. Medical officer at the Non-Communicable Diseases Department at the World Health Organization, Upira Jensberg, elaborates. WHO's main message on World Cancer Day is that much can and should be done to reduce premature mortality from the non-communicable diseases, including cancer. And this is aligned with the newly adopted Sustainable Development Goals. South Africa's Health Minister Aaron Mutsuledi has meanwhile warned the public against underestimating the importance of testing for cancer. This as the world marks Cancer Day. The World Health Organization says more than 8 million people died from cancer around the world last year. Mutsuledi says many people wait until it's too late to get tested for the disease checked for cancer. He says many women in South Africa die from breast cancer each year. When you talk of issues like cancer, many people really are not aware of what's going on. If you were to stop anybody in the streets and ask them, many women all know that the commonest cancer that is killing South African women is breast cancer, followed by cervical cancer, cancer of the womb. And when you come to men, it will be prostate cancer, followed by colorectal cancers. Many people don't even know that. We see them in the hospital when they are sick, when it's already very late, when the cancer has spread. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it is exactly 8.06 Central African time. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Thursday, February the 4th, the 35th day of 2016, with 331 days left in the year. Burundi's authorities have released a list of 34 names of opposition chiefs, civil society leaders and journalists now in exile. They want them to face trial for their alleged role in the May 2015 coup bid. The appeal comes after a court jailed 21 men for their role in the coup. Meanwhile, the four major media outlets remain shut despite the promise of President Pierre Nkurunziza to allow two of them to reopen. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. The Secretary-General of the High Court of Burundi, Agnes Bangirichenge, has revealed 34 names of suspects involved in the May 13, 2015 failed coup, most of them residing in exile. The High Court of Bujumbura wants countries hosting the suspects to arrest and extradite them to Burundi so that they can be tried. Among the shortlisted suspects include four media managers and three journalists from the four destroyed media outlets. The list comes out as independent journalists have been undergoing relentless harassment and intimidations, even arrest, being accused of entertaining close relations with coup plotters or having a hand in the failed coup. For some, it's a sign that the case is evolving towards the possibility of reopening the shut radios. First of all, I'm glad to hear about that general prosecutor uh, saying that there are some who has been attacked 
part in uh, the failed military coup so that uh, this is I think is a kind of uh, showing responsibility between the, who uh, did this who did that and you know uh, since May 14 our radio has been shut down and uh, when we asked to the government why don't you open our uh, media they told us that uh, we undergo a, a judiciary issue I can say that it's a, it's a good for us it's a good for us and uh, uh, we're still waiting for the reopening of our media uh, so that we can uh, wake us before the uh, shutting down of our uh, media president Nguruza, during his uh, uh, public press conference uh, he told that there are some two media uh, which will be reopened and uh, following this uh, I think that this is a prelude of uh, there somehow some of the burnt radios which will be uh, reopened as soon as possible. Samson Maniadokunda, the acting director of Radio Sanganiro, one of the destroyed and shaft outlets, says he's not surprised to find some of his colleagues on the list of suspects in the failed coup. For him, the fact that they have been denied access to the premises of their radio was a sign that the judiciary suspected some of his journalists. Remember that at the end of May 2015, the public ministry informed us that there is an ongoing investigation which was focused on the responsibilities of the journalists in the coup and the responsibilities of those who destroyed and or burned the medias, I mean the public medias. To see some of our colleagues on the list issued by the High Court of Bujumbura on people sued for their suspected role in that failed coup is really surprising. We are surprised to see them among the coup plotters as journalists. However, this doesn't mean that they have a responsibility. It's a situation. Although we cannot intrude into the work of justice, I hope that there are no relevant proofs. We hope our follower journalists will gain a fair trial. Your radio is still shut. Now, do you think uh, it's a prelude to maybe a possible reopening? We don't know. But uh, the judiciary denied us access to the premises of our radio. On the ground of investigations, determined responsibility for the radio. Till now, we don't know the progress of their investigations. We don't know whether it's over or whether it's just a part of the process. Maybe let's wait and see in the coming days. Some of his journalists continue to face harassment, intimidations and arrest as a result of suspicion. Mr. Manadukunda does not directly relate this situation to the prosecutions against some of his journalists in exile. He says it's just suspicion which will end with time. It's true that some of our journalists say who choose to remain here in Burundi are sometimes victims of harassment and intimidation or even arrest. We do not know the reason behind. Maybe there is a relation, but we cannot confirm it as no explanation has been given about this situation. We think that they may suspect anyone who was working for our radio, but we'd better wait and see how the situation will evolve. Do you fear for your security? Uh, as a human being, uh, it's normal considering the prevailing situation of the country. As you said, some of our colleagues are still prone to harassments and intimidations, but no one has been prosecuted. So we keep hope that as days go on, 
suspicions would finish. Around 40 Burundian journalists and media managers are believed to have fled the country following a government crackdown in the wake of the May 13, 2015 failed coup. Independent radios and television stations, RPA, Bonesha, Renaissance and Sanganiro, broadcast the failed coup, prompting armed attack by people in police uniforms. Later on, the judiciary ordered a ban to their premises on the grounds of investigations still underway to identify the responsibilities of those radios in the coup and their distractions. Till now, those radios are yet to reopen, despite the promise by President Pierre Nkurunziza to allow two of them resume their activities. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. As Syrian peace talks in Geneva falter over continued fighting in the country, the focus now shifts to a donor conference in London today. The United Nations and its agencies are asking for as much as $9 billion to meet the needs on the ground. 11 million people are in need of aid, while the conflict has forced 4.6 million to seek refuge outside the country in what is now the largest humanitarian emergency anywhere in the world. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. It's a record appeal for Syria's desperate millions. And with the political track suspended in Geneva, the parallel humanitarian track is what matters in the short term. The Secretary General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq. We certainly have been pushing the case with member states, uh, including in the Secretary General's own travels around the world, to make sure at this conference that you'll have uh, a full funding for our target. Uh, you're aware that what we're calling for ultimately uh, st- uh, spans as high as $9 billion. And we know that that's a lot. We know the financial circumstances of our member states. But at the same time, the needs are great. Syria's total 2015 humanitarian appeal of over $7 billion was only 56% funded, raising serious questions about donor fatigue given the multitude of crises around the world and the ambition required to meet the escalating needs for this drawn-out conflict, now almost in its sixth year and with no clear political way out. This, while neighboring countries in particular, the likes of Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan, bear the mammoth burden of hosting those millions forced to flee. Conference host the UK's Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond. No one can safely predict that these refugees from the Assad regime will be able to return home uh, anytime soon. The, this protracted nature means that a new approach is necessary We've been working very closely with Jordan to develop an ambitious compact uh, which will provide uh, transformational uh, financial support to benefit Jordanians, refugees uh, and host communities. The UN's mediator on Syria, Stefan de Mastura, earlier suspended peace talks in Geneva until February 25th. From the first day, I've indicated that I'm not prepared to hold talks for the sake of talks. And the Secretary General has said the same. And therefore, I've been asking and will be asking for the IFFG to convene as soon as possible, hopefully already in Munich, the Security Council to meet, and we reconvene in Geneva again on the 25th of February. His remarks followed days of talks in Geneva that achieved very little between government negotiators and the opposition. 
as part of a broader attempt at six months of proximity talks agreed to last November in Austria's capital, Vienna. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveitoire. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. U.S. health officials are bracing for the spread of a mosquito-borne Zika virus in the country later this year when temperatures rise after the first case was identified in Dallas, Texas this week. This as the U.N.'s health agency earlier warned that the Zika virus linked to a micro Kefali outbreak in Latin America could spread to Africa and Asia. The World Health Organization this week declared the virus explosion extraordinary, constituting a global public health emergency. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The rapidly spreading virus is linked to severe birth defects in Latin America, particularly in Brazil, with concern now that it could explode around the globe. Dr. Anthony Costello is Director of Maternal, Child and Adolescent Health at the World Health Organization. This is not a life-threatening infection like HIV or like Ebola. But the problem is that the complications of this relatively mild illness do have potentially devastating effects for families. To have a child with microcephaly and to have a tenfold increase in numbers and the potential for spread, not just across Latin America, but into Africa, into Asia, which have the highest birth rates in the world, uh, we believe is a matter of public health concern and constitutes an international emergency. The agency is seen to be more proactive in its response to this outbreak after systemic failures were identified in its initial response to the Ebola outbreak, which has devastated parts of West Africa. The worry with Zika virus, which in three quarters, even 80%, will not produce symptoms in people, is this apparent association with a surge in cases of microcephaly. Now, microcephaly means an abnormally small head. It's a relatively rare condition. Statistics vary from different parts of the world, somewhere between 1 in 3,000, 1 in 5,000, maybe more. 
The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention confirmed the first Zika case in Texas earlier, with officials saying the infection arose after sexual contact with someone who had traveled to Venezuela. Dr. Tom Frieden heads the Atlanta-based CDC. With Zika, we don't know exactly how long someone can remain infectious, but in this case, as we understand it, someone had just gotten sick with Zika, and that individual's sexual partner then developed Zika without a travel history. The CDC laboratory confirmed that both individuals do have recent Zika infection. In addition to the Texas case, the virus is now thought to affect more than 20 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. The UN Children's Fund's Christophe Bulirac. We are engaging communities in Brazil, and um, there are simple measures that we want to promote that can, kill, that can help keep people safe, include, uh, using, uh, including using insect repellent, just to go more into details, uh, covering as much of the body as possible with long, light-colored clothing, removing places where mosquitoes can breed and putting screens on window and doors. The World Health Organization has warned that the virus could infect 4 million people in the Americas as it launched a global response unit to fight the mosquito-borne virus. I'm Sherwin Bricebees at the UN in New York. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. 
This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.25 and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, a total of 32 new sheriffs have been appointed by the South African Department of Justice and Constitutional Development and they are expected to undergo two weeks training program which will prepare them when they start to discharge their responsibilities as of next month. To talk to us more on this appointment, we're joined on the line by the Deputy Director for Sheriff Administration at the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development here in South Africa, Joy Fanda Yeda. Good morning, Joy, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Hi, good morning, and good morning to your listeners as well. Now, Joy, what exactly is the role of the Sheriff of the Court? The Sheriff is actually a very important interface. They're basically messengers of the Court, which means that they are the ones that have to serve the documents on the various people that's litigating against each other and provide proof to Court that it has been um, served on those identified individuals. So basically they just, um, the between goes between court and, you know, the members of the public and they just make sure that everything is compliant with legislation. Now, Joy, who pays the sheriff of the court? Is it uh, government, your department? Well, the, it works differently. You see, sheriffs are paid in court according to a tariff and the litigating parties have to pay that. However, there are certain circumstances where the department pays the fees of the sheriff instead. Um, that is when, with regards to our free services that we offer to people, such as maintenance, domestic violence, um, as well as uh, small claims court matters, you know, that is where the department tries to assist as far as possible with the sheriff. But in small claims court matters, uh, the litigant must still pay, but we've worked out a fee arrangement and agreement with the sheriff that it's really kept to the minimum. Now, Joy, how important is that you have this arm of the legal system to be effective in terms of ensuring all cases are pursued timelessly? Well, there has to be a 
checks and balances in every matter in order to ensure objectivity and in order to ensure that there's fairness. And the sheriffs do that in the way that they play messenger of court. So they basically will take a court order and take it to the judgment debtor and explain to judgment debtor, this is your rights in terms of this court order. If you don't you want to settle this, then you need to seek legal advice. And they will normally refer them to various you know, institutions like Legal Aid South Africa or one of the university legal aid clinics if they want advice. If that, that's if they don't have an attorney of their own. So they are very important as being in the role of messenger of court. Now, in terms of the appointments that you've made so far, do they reflect gender equity? Well, not enough. That is, that would be my honest answer <laughs> on the issue. Um, we, you see, the, the sheriffs go through a very rigorous um, interview process, and the panel of members sit on the provincial advisory committee in each province that interview the sheriffs or the applicants for, for becoming a sheriff, they have to make sure and test the person's knowledge on whether they know, um, you know all the legislation which the sheriff needs to administer, such as the Criminal Procedure Act, the Constitution, uh, Magistrates' Court Act, the rules, the, uh, you know, various legislation. There's so many, there's about 24 pieces of legislation that the sheriffs have to know. Um, and they have to test their knowledge. So it's very difficult for someone who hasn't been exposed to the sheriff profession or the legal profession to actually, you know, know that sort of thing. So we are looking for more female sheriffs. We currently have, um, out of the 32 new appointees that we have, only 43% were women. So it's, a, it's quite a substantial amount of women that we've appointed this time around. But in total, um, the women that we have currently is only 27% that's in the entire country. So we need more women to come forward and apply when they see vacancies for sheriffs. Now, what does it entail to be a sheriff? What sort of qualifications are you looking at? Are you looking at for experience? Or is it just um, somebody who's going to come in, apply, sit down for an interview, and they make it through the, through the process? Look, there are minimum required requirements that's legislated by the Sheriff's Act and its regulations that we have to take into consideration. We can't ignore it. So it's, number one, that they must be an African citizen. Um, that they offer them proper, that basically means that they don't have any um, sort of um, liquidation or sequestration behind them, that they have the financial ability to obviously establish a sheriff's office because sheriffs work for their own account. They're not department employees. They are purely quasi-judicial, which means that they are kind of independent. They're on their own, but they do render services for the court. Um, they must also be competent to conduct the business of a sheriff, which means they need an appropriate post-grade 12 certificate or qualification. So that means they must have matric plus a post-grade quali- uh, 12 qualification, either certificate or degree, or some sort of qualification that's more or less in line with um, you know, the legal profession. So they also need an understanding of civil law and a knowledge of the various other legislation that's implemented in our courts. Now, Joy, very briefly, can you just take us through some of the challenges that sheriffs face when executing their duties? Well, it's very difficult for them because they have to be the interface between the court and the members of the public. And it's very typical what they go through in terms of, I don't know, you know the old saying, um, shoot the messenger. So they are basically (laughs) just messengers of the court and they feel the brunt of the public's anger. Um, We've had 
instances where sheriff's homes have been burnt down because the community was upset that the sheriff was about to evict a portion of the community. But the sheriff has to comply with the court order, and they need to explain that to the community, and they've been doing that, and we've been sending them on training courses to teach them also how to go about enforcing a court order, but still within the confines of the Constitution, upholding the rights of our citizens. So we're hoping that these courses that we are doing and the awareness campaigns that we are having throughout the year will be able to um, in educate the community and the fact as to the shed of just being a messenger of the court, the actual issue that they might have might lie with the applicant in the matter, or the plaintiff in the matter, or the attorney or the court, but it's definitely not the sheriff. Joy, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. That was uh, Joy van der Heide, Deputy Director for Sheriff Administration at South Africa's Department of Justice and Constitutional Development. And Musa's up next with the headlines. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, an Egyptian appeals court has overturned death sentences issued against 149 people in connection with a deadly attack on a police station in 2013. UN-brokered talks involving the warring parties in Syria have been suspended, and Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari urges the international community to help end the turmoil in Libya, warning it's creating a strategic time bomb for Africa and Europe. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And it is 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. About one-third of cancer cases can be prevented by limiting tobacco use, lowering alcohol consumption and doing more exercise, as according to the World Health Organization, as the world marks World Cancer Day. The WHO, which predicts global cancer cases will rise to more than 20 million annually over the next two decades, is calling for improved health coverage for cancer and other non-communicable diseases. More from medical officer in the NCD department at WHO in Geneva, Dr. Ophira Ginsberg. WHO's main message on World Cancer Day is that much can and should be done to reduce premature mortality from the non-communicable diseases, including cancer. And this is aligned with the newly adopted Sustainable Development Goals. What can you tell us about uh, what are still the leading causes of cancer death today? The number one cause of cancer death is tobacco. About a third of cancers can be prevented by reduction in the major risk factors, including, of course, better tobacco control, as well as improved diets, improved activity levels to decrease the sedentary lifestyle that's rising in all countries, particularly in low- and middle-income countries, and harmful use of alcohol. If we can get these under control, we can reduce about one-third. But what many people are not aware of is that many cases of cancer are also linked to infectious agents. So if we can improve our coverage of the hepatitis B vaccine, as well as rapidly uh, improving coverage of the human papillomavirus HPV vaccine, you could greatly reduce the rates of liver cancer, which is still a major issue in many low- and middle-income countries, as well as cervical cancer, which is still the number one cancer in women in more than 30 countries. 
how can the burden of cancer be reduced? Is it through prevention, detection or treatment? That's an excellent question. The way to reduce the cancer burden globally is it requires a multi-pronged approach that does all of those things. We can prevent many cancers. We can detect early and provide access to uh, good quality, timely and affordable treatment. And we can also help improve the lives of people living with cancer who have advanced disease. So all of these things play a very important role in reducing the huge burden of cancer to people and their families. Several developed countries declared the war on cancer, but how much real progress has been made? We can say that much progress has been made in many cancers. However, in some cancers, very little progress has been made. Cancer is more than 100 different diseases, so it is a complex question. But we can say that overall, mortality rates have dramatically been reduced in many high-income countries due to a combination of prevention, early detection, and better treatment. Anything else to add? I think the most important message we want this particular World Cancer Day, where the UN Secretary General is making a bold statement, is that we can eliminate cervical cancer as a public health issue. And we know how to do that, and the time to act is now. Now, that was Dr. Opira Ginsberg, Medical Officer in the Non-Communicable Diseases Department at the World Health Organization, speaking to UN Radio's Mamadou Alpha Diallo. Cancer is one of the major killers throughout both the developed and developing world, including South Africa. This deadly disease affects one in four South Africans through diagnosis of family, friends, colleagues or self. To talk to us more on the South African issue, we're now joined by a spokesperson at the country's health department, Joe Maile. Good morning, Joe, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and good morning to the listeners. Thank you very much for having us. Now, Joe, as the world marks Cancer Day today, what programs have been planned to educate South Africans about cancer? We are going around uh, in the country to make sure that people understand uh, the dangers of cancer and what is it uh, that they can do in order to make sure that we... Uh, uh, prevent um, uh, uh, the problems that we think we are facing as a country and therefore we are encouraging South Africans to go and test. As I'm speaking to you, I'm, I, I, I just left Baraguana's um, uh, uh, tax rank where the testing is taking place in the form of um, uh, a pink drive um, uh, at that very center. It's not only about women checking for the breast cancer but also to encourage men, uh, which is a big issue, uh, because men don't generally don't um, uh, go to test uh, in, in, in whatever the diseases that might have. They only go when there are serious uh, problems, when they are already sick, and therefore we are asking uh, people to go and test and know their status. Now, Joe, with the different types of cancer, and we know cancer is, is, very, is, is, is much more deadlier because in terms of treating it, you can treat it, but uh, go into remission and it comes back and it returns and it's another process of chemo and things like that. Which one would you say, um, as South Africa, were winning the war against um, in terms of uh, the dip- different types of cancers? Look, I suspect that uh, we, we, we are trying, particularly on the issue of breast cancer, we are uh, doing well because at least uh, women are generally uh, testing from time to time, but we are not winning the battle in terms of other uh, types of cancers like your prostate cancer. Because as I said, that um, as men, we only go to the doctor when um, the damage is already done. And we believe that uh, when people can test, and 
you see, if you can test and diagnosis becomes early, the better for the for the management of the disease. And therefore, it is important that we need to know. It's not about just cancer, but all other diseases, that we need to make sure that we, 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 we test and know where we are. The earlier the, the diagnosis, the better for treatment uh, to take place and the management of that particular disease. And that is what we're saying that South Africans need to um, uh, develop a culture, a new culture of knowing your health status, making sure that we do everything that we can to make sure that indeed we prevent the disease even from happening. Because there are a lot of things that we can do uh, in order for us to, to safeguard ourselves against this particular disease. Now, Joe, as a Department of uh, Health, um, do you think enough is being done to educate um, South Africans, especially especially the black community? Because um, in the past, cancer used to be regarded or known as uh, a white man's disease. But now things have changed. Lifestyles have changed. And uh, more and more black people are getting cancer and are dying from cancer. But some of them are not accepting and dealing with it, as you say. Is enough being done to educate the black community with regards to cancer? Well, I think there is a lot, a lot, a lot still to be uh, done in order to make sure that people understand uh, what is going on. Because as you said, that um, sometimes we find that in other communities, in state of just accepting something as a disease, we start by saying perhaps um, uh, somebody's bewitched and things like that. Or um, uh, the religious people also come to a point where they're saying, you cannot do it this way, but rather um, uh, take this or that. We, we don't necessarily accept the diseases as they come immediately, and that is where we have a problem. I think that we are um, uh, mostly in denial when things happen. So there's still a lot to be done in order to make sure that people understand the education around uh, this particular disease, including cancer, so that we must be able to win the battle against these diseases. The point is that, uh, indeed, while we are trying the best that we can, not only us, but also other partners in the health sector to um, uh, go around to educational programs, I think that there's still a lot that needs to be done. Now, Joe, before we let you go, very briefly, can you tell us what are the programs you're running today? I know that you mentioned that uh, you've got a testing station at the Baragwanath uh, 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 taxi rank. Where else are you? Where can people go to just sort of get tested? And how long are you going to be doing this uh, free testing? Is it going to be just for today or is it going to be the, for the rest of the week or the rest of the month? What's the situation there? No, we are generally doing tests uh, every day of our lives. We are doing tests all over, uh, like as, 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 as I already um, indicated, sometimes even when we have other events, even if it is not necessarily about APA, uh, on our HCT campaign, for example, we test for everything. So it is uh, something that we do all the time and that people can go to any of our facilities if they have the testing um, capacity at that particular facility, they'll be able to do so. But today, one of the things that we are doing is to make sure that we run a little bit of um, information sessions at our facilities, that when people come, they're also told about uh, cancer, their dangers, what is it that they need to do in order to make sure that they safeguard themselves from getting cancer, but also those who have it, what is it that we can do, not only just to um, uh, uh, for them to know their status, but what is it that we can do as a community, as a people, as a nation, to support them as opposed to uh, uh, trying to put them as though uh, they are a peculiar 
uh, kind of people and therefore they cannot be uh, supported as they should. So we need to make sure that we deal with this. Joe, thank you so much for joining us and all the best for today. And I hope that you, your message is sent through across the country and the rest of the continent. Thank you very much. That was Joe Maile, spokesperson at South Africa's Health Department. It's 8.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Southern Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Thanks, Belengile, and yes, we're in Southern Africa. Africa's largest mobile group, MTN, has hired a former top U.S. law enforcement official to help a challenge a 3.9 billion U.S. dollar fine imposed by Nigeria. Citing people familiar with the situation, it is said that former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder pleaded with Nigerian officials last month on behalf of the telecoms company. MTN has handed a $5.2 billion penalty in October last year. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has confirmed it served notice of intention to suspend electricity supply to eight municipalities on March the 30th due to continued non-payment. Last week, ESCOM announced it would disconnect electricity supply to five other municipalities for defaulting on payment plans. ESCOM's CEO, Brian Mulefe, has this warning for defaulting municipalities. We will switch off the municipalities that are in areas. Uh, We are currently in negotiations in the Northern Cape about uh, the municipalities that we had switched off last week Friday. And by the way, we did not get an interdict against uh, AfriForum claims that they have got an interdict. They didn't. The judge said that um, it gives ESCOM time to file papers. Until the papers are filed, uh, we should not do any cuts to the municipalities. So we filed the papers on Monday. But instead of switching off immediately after filing the papers, we are uh, negotiating with the Northern Cape. 
Strong investment flows to Africa will sustain high economic growth on the continent even amid low oil prices and a slowdown in China. The African Development Bank says Africa may grow 4.4% this year despite increasing current account and fiscal deficit caused by falling export revenues and depreciating currencies. Gross domestic product rose 4.5% last year. The Malawi Guacha continues to depreciate against major foreign currencies such as the US dollar, British pound, South African rand and European euro. This has forced the cost of living to be unbearable, with those in towns and villages failing to have a proper balanced diet. Some sleep on an empty stomach because the various maize selling points have dried up. George Mahango reports from Blintyre. One US dollar sells at 741 Malawi Kwacha and a British pound at 1,000 kwacha in commercial banks, thereby posing a threat to people. This is why prices of various food commodities go up daily and retailers are winners as they take advantage of the short supply on the market. Zimbabwe's economy will grow at 1.5% this year with consumer prices remaining deflationary. The World Bank says growth this year would be slower than the government's estimate of 2.7%. Zimbabwe is experiencing crippling power cuts blamed for keeping away potential investors. The U.S. dollar trades at 1619 South African Rand, 1130 Botswana Pula, 1123 in Zambia, 069 British Pound, 091 Euro. Gold is trading at $1139, platinum $884 an ounce, brand crude oil $35.40 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. the globe every second there's always a breaking story for channel africa radio in ethiopia's capital addis ababa for channel africa i'm lillian strobach reporting from the icc in the hague reporting for channel africa i am hilda kekeloa in zambia our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time george muhango Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Zambia Football Federation President Kalusha Bwalia, who also doubles up as the CAF Executive Committee member, has held Rwanda's preparations for the 2016 Africa Nations Championship Tournament, describing it as brilliant. Bwalia, who has been in the country since the start of the tournament, alluded to the fact that Rwanda had redefined the tournament's standards and applauded the local organizing committee. Meanwhile, the DR Congo have qualified for the finals of the Chan 2016 tournament after beating Guinea 5-4 on penalties on Wednesday. The match ended 1-0 after extra time. Dar Congo won the inaugural Chan tournament back in 2009 and they are hoping to replicate the same form in the 2016 edition. And Thursday's other semi-final, Avery Coast will take on Mali. Meanwhile, with the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations doubleheader between Nigeria and Egypt on the horizon, the Nigerian Football Federation are still yet to draw up their plans for the Super Eagles. Nigeria trail Egypt by two points going into next month's doubleheader, with both matches likely to determine who makes it to Gabon 2017. The Super Eagles, like the Pharaohs of Egypt, failed to qualify for the last edition in Equatorial Guinea, which was won by Cote d'Ivoire. The Egyptians have been prepared their team as they played two friendly matches last week in Egypt. The Pharaohs lost the first test match 1-0 to Jordan, but rallied back to beat Libya 2-0 in their second match. Meanwhile, the Nigerian Football Federation General Secretary Dr. Mohamed Sanosi has revealed that everything has been put in place to make sure that Nigeria does well against Egypt. Back home, Orlando Pirates head coach Eric Tenkler felt his side performed better in the first half than the second half against Ajax Cape Town on Wednesday night. Pirates managed to hold on after a nervy end to their um, 2-1 win over Ajax Cape Town at Orlando Stadium thanks to an own goal and a second-half strike from Sifiso Mugeni. Tenkler admitted delight at the way his troops played in the first half and felt they should have had a bigger lead at the half-time break due to the chances created. In terms of our performance, I thought the first half we were very good. Truth be told, I thought we were very good in the first half. We should have killed the game off, in all honesty. We should have come in at halftime, at least 3-0 up, considering the chances that we had. Second half performance was, in my opinion, very, very poor. Although it did start in the last eight minutes of the first half, we seemed to take our foot off the pedal, lose concentration, lose focus. You know, we were dropping off way too deep. We came into this game with a 4-2-3-1 formation because we knew that they would be playing in their 4-3-3 with two more attack-minded midfielders with the one midfielder in the booker sitting, and we had planned for that. As a result, Pirates moved to 12th position with 20 points from 16 games, while Ajax Cape Town dropped 13 points on the log, or rather 13th position on the log standings. Tengla says they needed all three points. <laughs> Today, obviously I would have liked to have finished the game 2-0 or possibly 3-0 or 4-0. Most important today was obviously for us to win. Considering the type of performance we produced in the first half, obviously there's the disappointment on my part how we performed in the second. And now it's about me going home, watching it again, and try and figure out exactly what was the reasons behind us not applying the same pressure, giving them that amount of space, and try and fix that problem leading, leading into the next game. In the other matches of the evening, Supersport United and Bloemfontein Celtic played out to a one-all draw, while Bulgogne City rather defeated Mansburg United by three goals to one. Bitvid Vitz as well as um, um, Bitvid Vitz and Bulgogne City played out to a one-all draw, and it finished two-all um, two between University of Pretoria as well as Free State Stars. 
And finally, in cricket news, a century by England wicketkeeper Jos Butler paved the way for his team's 39-run victory via the dug with Lewis Method over the Proteus in the first one-day international at the Mangawung Oval in Bloemfontein on Wednesday. England captain Jon Morgan had no hesitation in opting to bat after winning the toss and openers Jason Roy and Alex Hales got their team off to a flyer with Roy in particular punishing the Proteus bowlers. Despite losing Hashim Amla early, Faf Duplessis and Quentin de Kock kept the um, English bowlers under immense pressure during a partnership of 111 runs for the second wicket. Wickets continue to fall regularly with Captain A.B. de Villiers, J.P. Dominey and Riley Rousseau unable to build any significant partnerships with de Kock, who was unbeaten on 138 runs. Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to China Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour, Burundi urges foreign governments to arrest exile coup plotters. World leaders gather in London to raise money for Syrian crisis. And UN marks World Cancer Day with call for more physical activity. That wraps up Africa Raza and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Salif Keta with a song titled Manju.